Recently, I've been asked some questions about a traditional practice in, uh, in Buddhism. It goes back centuries. I'm not sure of the, the source of it. Uh, not sure of the source of most anything. Uh, so the title is uh, of this morning's Dharma talk is No Noble Silence. A noble silence, in other words, it's uh, sometimes used a little bit different. It's called functional speech. And when I first uh, began practicing with my teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, in 1973. This is something that I ran into was, well, you meditate, and then when you're done meditating, if you're in a retreat situation, then you're, you're silent. You don't talk unless you absolutely have to. In a noble silence, you, you don't talk at all. Functional speech, you talk like, please pass the salt, that kind of thing. Very functional. So I, uh, and I've been, I was trained as a meditation instructor in that tradition in, uh, in uh, Karmakagyu. It was before Shambhala, so it was in the Karmakagyu tradition. Of the, one of the four main lineages of Tibet, and I also had, had practiced with Kategori Roshi in the Zen tradition in uh, uh, Minneapolis back in the early 70s. So I had a good taste of uh, functional speech or noble silence. And as some of you know, and maybe some of you can tell, I don't think much. Is that okay with you guys? You're probably doing enough thinking for both of us. This doesn't mean I don't think at all. It just means that the thinking is not coming out of uh, some kind of confusion, trying to figure something out. This is a mis misunderstanding of the way the mind works. People do it everywhere, all the time. The whole world is run out of, should we or shouldn't we? Anytime you see a, a should I or shouldn't I, stop. Don't do anything. Stop figuring. Remember where your hands are. You might Just start with your own body. Your only source of sanity, my friends, is your body. Not someone else's body, not someone else's laws, not, not my laws, not what I say. If you understand what I'm saying, you can leave this room and never listen to me again, which is the idea here of a teacher is to, so you can you have, as Trunk Rinpoche said, you have the teacher so you can leave the teacher. You don't have the teacher so you can become a, uh, uh, some kind of a supplicant or some kind of a slave. And so there are some teachers that want you to, want to hang on to you. So no noble Silence, that's coming out of watching this, looking at this, doing what I teach, observe this for a long period of time, uh, about 30 years, actually. It's a long time. It's even a long time when you're as old as I am. So, and what I saw over a long period of time is, is the way that that was used by people, including me, to, as, uh, as, uh, as for some people, as kind of a hideout. Oh, I don't have to talk to anybody all day. What's commonly called an introvert, people who don't really want to be, they don't want this community socializing stuff. And then there's the other people who love that, and they're actually tortured by being quiet all day long. And they hate it, but they do it anyway, or not, or they sneak off in the corner and have little conversations with their friends behind the Buddha. Not much room back there. Uh, so again, this is something I say over and over and over again. I'm going to say it again right now. This is an awareness practice, and I'll say it, I'll contrast it with what some people think it is, that's a control practice. It is not about control. There's lots of places, I spent four years in the Marine Corps, I can tell you what control is. And it's not about awareness in the Marine Corps, it's about control. And this is why this world is so wild and crazy, because there are some people want to control everybody else. That's the end of my political statements. So I didn't uh, suddenly just think it up. I think I'll not have the, the, the form of noble silence or functional speech. 
when you're sitting facing a wall, one of, the, one of the things you can tell by looking at all of our forms, the ones I think are important, we actually have, if you come here and live in this monastery, you're required, unless you can show me other, or you need something, have something else you have to do, you're required to sit and face this wall six and a half hours a day. So I didn't cut back on that. I increased it. Most people don't sit six and a half hours, or even in monasteries. Look at all the other monasteries in the country, or even in Japan. They barely sit an hour or two hours a day, maybe three if it's a, a special day. Usually it's some kind of forms or supplications or repetitions. Those are good too. We do some of those, some. So I have had in the past, I had one friend who came, uh, wasn't a student of mine, but was a little bit of a student while they're here. When you leave, when you're here, you're a student. When you leave, you can do something else. Uh, she really wanted to practice functional speech. And so, and then she said, could I put a, I said, well, it's not a rule. Just, just don't talk. You don't have to, somebody talks to you, just don't respond. Just drop your gaze or, or else safe functional speech. Uh, the, if they're, they might be confused by that because they know that's not a forum. So that's a way of separating yourself from everybody else. You're this special person who is actually taking on a, a heavier practice, you know, not talking all day. Notice by sarcasm, that's intentional. <clears throat> that being said, I wanted to meet her where she was at. I, my motivation is to help her, not to manipulate her or control her. So I looked at the situation, did not think about it, looked at the situation, and then I heard myself saying, yes, you can, you can put that on, and then other people will observe that you don't want to talk. So we'll see how that goes. Let's just go ahead and do it that way. And that seemed to work okay. Was anyone here during that? You were here. Anyone else? So it seemed to be all right. It was a little confusing. I think she shushed you up a few times. And it doesn't make her wrong, it just means that she was trained in a different tradition, and she was stuck to that tradition. The tradition is not going to help you very much if you're stuck to it. Don't believe in anything. Don't disbelieve anything. And don't ignore anything. Try that on. Do that the rest of your life. There's your practice. You don't even have to meditate. And, and that's the other thing I would say is you shouldn't meditate unless you have to. If you're meditating because I told you to or somebody else told you to, you should look closely at that. On the other hand, if you're a student of mine, you better meditate. Why be a student? You're not going to, yeah, be something else. It's just a form. So uh, over a long period of time, looking at the form, <clears throat> I saw how that form seems to doesn't seem to really help the awareness part of the practice. What it what it helps is it gives you actually a break from talking to people, uh, and then the uh, the other people who uh, really. Uh, want to talk and want to socialize and so on um, might be a little easier for them if there's not uh, a rule that you can't chat with people. So what I say is, this is my emphasis here, and you know, we could, we could have a debate on this, or you can have a debate with somebody else because I don't debate. The way it looks is, if you're sitting down looking at the wall all day long, this is, this is a, a actual silence. I mean, you're sitting, looking at a wall, and your form is sit down, hold still, look. That's not all, that's somewhat artificial because you would probably move around or shift around or lean back. Anytime you move anything at all, even the slightest movement, this takes awareness away. You, you can look at this for yourself <clears throat> from what, everything else that's moving. Even if you don't aren't aware that you're uh, um, uh, casually moving around or shifting your position. This is why it's so important to hold very, very still. Just observe. And the, the more still, less rigid, but still, 
and silent, then anything that's moving anywhere over time takes a while. You begin to, things begin to show up that you've been able to shut down on, ignore, dismiss, disregard, or distract yourself from. So the idea with the form is to help you, is to help you clarify your mind, help you work with your, uh, descriptively, you could say your insanity or your craziness or your spinning mind or however you want to, however you want to call it. And so the silence part or the stillness part, just like walking meditation on command, you need some kind of timing. So we do have that. You just were here for the morning service, lots of sutras, but not that much, what, 25, 30 minutes in a whole day. Not that much. So in the traditional practice, uh, Zen, and not so much in uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhism, uh, but uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, when he came over, he kind of adopted the Zen form. But of course, Trungpa Rinpoche is only 33 years old, or 32 years old at the time, and he's only been in the West for seven or eight, ten years. So uh, he had to come up with something. So he borrowed. So this you would, someone would strike the bell, you'd be sit, sit for 40 minutes or half an hour, an hour, and then you would get up and walk for 10 minutes a certain way. Uh, the Kinhin style is uh, in Shashu Mudra like this, parallel with the floor, like so, or under the, the Raksu, like so, if you're wearing one. And then uh, you step, half steps, and you, um, one way that it's done is you, you synchronize that with your out-breath. You step down, you breathe out, and then you watch your breathing, and then you step with uh, uh, synchronicity with the out-breath, out-breath, out-breath. And this, uh, it feels pretty good to do that. It's an interesting practice. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but the way it looks, you need to do that when you need to do it, not when some arbitrary person sitting in front hits a bell, time to sit after exactly 40 minutes or exactly an hour. The one thing Trungpa Rinpoche did do is uh, he saw that the that 40 minute period or the half hour period, the 45 minute period or the 50 minute period that was used in the Zen, not a uh, Soto Zen, Rinzai Zen and other forms of sitting meditation. He changed that, he modified it. So if you went to what he uh, called a Datun or an all day med or all uh, month, month long meditation, you'd run into a situation where you'd be sitting 10 hours a day and uh, thereabouts and you would come in and you would, the bell would ring, they'd do a, a, some morning chants and uh, English translation of Tibetan chants. You'd do those, and then you would sit for maybe 20 minutes. The bell would ring. Time to walk. You get up. Then uh, later, then you'd sit for 38 minutes, and the bell would ring again. And then the next time it would be an hour and a half. And one day we would get get warned about it. Somebody would say, you know, in the third week there's a five-hour set. So, <laughs> so everybody's. And I didn't sit. And I went to the bathroom in the middle of that. Not in the meditation hall. <laughs> I went in an outhouse where Allen Ginsberg had written a poem. <laughs> so this whole idea of, of when to do this, when not to do this, functional speech, no functional speech, I, I would leave it up to you, uh, each individual, just like walking meditation, even though we do a scheduled walking meditation, I think uh, just during retreat, just during uh, the all day, once a month, and then during uh, session, we have about four days of pretty classically structured Zen. Um, so I'm not particularly analyzing it and taking it apart. I'm just looking at it over a long period of time. What, what's going to really help? What's helped me? Uh, being a meditation instructor since 1978, I've watched what seems to be helping other people. Talk to lots of people uh, way before I um, started uh, practicing in this way. <clears throat> so it seems that some people could, your hour, you're sitting here for a couple of hours and uh, after 20 minutes, a half an hour, 45 minutes, 
you might want to get up and walk around, and you're, it's certainly okay to get up and do walking meditation. You can even do the very slow kinhin form, or you can do the more a little bit more uh, ordinary uh, walking meditation uh, that's taught in the that's now taught in the Shambhala tradition. I think I don't know if they change things there, but it was, it was taught uh, back in the '70s when I learned this, and that would be just you might hold your hand in shashu, but you would just walk at more of a, a ordinary speed and not synchronize anything. So either one of those, probably a good idea that everybody should walk clockwise, not because it's a magical direction, but because it's, we can all agree on that. Nobody's going to run into anybody else. And then that would be up to you when to interrupt your sitting practice, because some people might be right in a state where the very best thing, and when I say that, I'm not talking about it analytically. I'm saying the very best thing is to stay there and continue to look at the wall and not get up and walk right then. And yet you've got somebody arbitrarily telling you to now it's time to walk, just like somebody arbitrarily telling you time to shut up. And as something is artificial, uh, I, I did this, I followed orders. I was in Marine Corps. So for 30 years, I did it the way my teacher, my guru, told me to do it and told everybody else. So I just followed that even though I, I didn't. I had to... Uh, well, mis is the word misgivings about it for a long time kept, and kept thinking, well, I'll probably see eventually how, how valuable this is and I'll be on board for that. It never happened. And uh, that being said, I, I never really made a decision not to do that. I just noticed that I wasn't telling anybody that. Um, you were here a few, several years ago and I, we just did this and I said, let's, let's just not do it that way. But it didn't become a, a, a strong form. <clears throat> as something that was laid out as something to, to do or not do, but just we just stopped doing that. Right? Either walking meditation or uh, function or uh, um, not, say, enforcing or having a form called functional speech or noble sign. So the interesting thing about that too is uh, that's very helpful. Uh, is uh, the the three jewels in Buddhism is the Buddha, is the example of someone who is awake the Buddha and the teaching, or everything is dependently arisen. There's no separate self anywhere, either here or there. It has to be realized. It's not something you can just think about. And then the third one, which is quite often uh, ignored, is the Sangha, or the community of people who are studying this. These people need to talk to each other. If you have people sitting, I've been to many retreats in the last close to half a century, where you go somewhere I'm thinking of one I went to in Indiana that was with a, a Kagyu a group. Uh, it was uh, with uh, His Holiness the 16th Karmapa before he passed on. His uh, community was down there practicing with them. And, um, and because they had this fun functional silence, I didn't get to know anybody. So I came, I meditated with them. They were there. Uh, I, there was no interaction because everybody had to be quiet. And so you sat and even though you'd, you'd eat together and you couldn't talk to anybody because it's functional speech, so, you know, I might as well stay at home. Uh, maybe it's not exactly that way, but there was something at the time. I, I just remember that, I, you know, I saw a lot of people. I practiced with people for the whole weekend, uh, what, um, two and a half days, something like that. And didn't, so there was no interaction in an in a ordinary social way with others. Sometimes the last day of the retreat, the one uh, uh, Unio and I went to several years ago, went to Detroit, uh, Detroit Zen Center, and, uh, and they're kind of, tight over there about things like that. So you can get to really talk to people. What was it, five days? Yeah, five days. Um, and pretty pretty strict, pretty classically uh, along the lines of Rinzai. It was a koan <coughs> practice, so you're, you're given a, this uh, dumb, logical question, illogical question, and you're try to, supposed to try to make sense out of it. You've all heard of koans, probably. Yeah. 
So your life is your co-op. You don't need to have something extra in there. That's how it looks to me. It's not right. It's not correct. You think it's some, uh, some, uh, some other way, then do it some other way. Um, and so that's another uh, situation where we couldn't, didn't really get to know the people there. I think you, you and I has, uh, talked maybe three or four times, said something like, how are you doing? Okay, how are you doing? Was it? <laughs> I was even, uh, in the work period, I was even uh, building a wall, a stud wall in the a community area there. And uh, I was talking a little bit with this young fellow who was helping me and I was telling him what to do and, and how to do that. And uh, they actually came and told me to not, here I am in a work period. I can't talk with a guy. And I'm there, I mean, I would, if I were to just say, hand me those nails. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the correct hammer? So, mocking it a little bit. Um, but I would have been would have been good to be able to, to visit with that person a little bit, even in the work period. So, what is this about? Control. And what is control about? Power. And what is power about? You get you get to be under somebody else's thumb. It's happening all over the place. Don't do it. Don't believe anything I say. You don't have to ignore it. Don't believe it. I'm not. I, I don't need any followers. I don't even need students. And they don't need me for very long. If they're really if they're really students, you don't need the teacher very long because eventually uh, you, the mind, as I said in the classical tradition, the mind of the teacher and the mind of the student merge. I was going to just say tell one more anecdote, which I think is quite good. It has, has a little bit to do with this and you can apply it in your own mind as you as you hear it. But I'm in the it's mid 70s sometime. I'm in Chicago. I'm at the Dharmadatu then. Uh, it's on the second floor, looking down onto State Street, and uh, Trunk Rinpoche was there doing doing an intensive training seminar, which he would come from Boulder every now and then and do those. I would always go down. Some of you have heard this story. And I'm standing there looking out the window, and a, um, a fellow uh, Sangha member there, a member of the community, I'll, I'll say, won't say his last name, but his first name is Roger, and he had uh, those, of, uh, those who, who were down there, which I doubt any of those people are watching this, but... Uh, he was. He had a. Uh, I think he had a PhD in philosophy. He was a very, very intelligent fellow. Uh, pretty hard to get a PhD in philosophy without. When you say that, would you say you would? You don't know. So I'm here, and there's a little bit of space between us. Not much, but a little bit. Roger's over here. And we're kind of looking down. A few little random comments. Not functional speech, but uh, just a little bit of talking. And then who shows up between us? But uh, uh, Trungpa. And he's standing there, and he's. He's also looking down at the traffic, and I'm, I'm petrified because I, I know that he can probably read my mind. <laughs> he can see how completely insane I am and how I don't even deserve to be a student of his, and I shouldn't even be meditating. I should go back and wait a few more lifetimes before I, you know, as a, um, a potato farmer in uh, Belgium or something. Uh, I'm standing there, and I, I really am. I'm not kidding. I really was. You know, nervous because I hadn't, I'd never sat and, you know, like I sit and chat with all of these people, uh, my students uh, here, and I'm quite accessible. He, he was accessible, but you didn't know if you wanted to access his accessibility. <laughs> he, because he was a, a incredibly, uh, his, his presence was quite overwhelming, uh, whereas uh, mine is not. Um, Kobanchino Roshi was another style of teacher whose presence was practically invisible. You wouldn't know he was in the room. Yeah, something was in the room, but you didn't know if it was him or something else. His, uh, we call that, I call that bodhicitta. His bodhicitta was uh, powerful, but it didn't come to an, it come from an individual. It's like it was a, 
uh, it was environmental generosity, environmental uh, awakening. So <laughs> we're standing there, and the, and then uh, Roger wants to kind of whoop it up with, "Hey, so I'm coming pretty close to his voice." Oh, Rinpoche, what do you think of Chicago? And Rinpoche, there's a little bit of a pause, and said, "It doesn't matter what I think of Chicago." And that stopped everything. <laughs> we found out what functional speech was. <laughs> and so using that, that's that's how that could work. That would be a way for that to work so that so that it comes out of awareness and out of the environment, out of the it's situational, rather than you apply something and make sure every, no one can talk. Because three people, uh, it might be much better for them to interact with others. And then two people, maybe they should be more quiet, but it's their path. <laughs> and so the sooner you can help your, as a teacher, the way I feel, the sooner you can help somebody walk their path. Everyone's path is different. That's the amazing thing about the Buddha Dharma. If it's, if it's understood, there are people who teach Buddha Dharma that's not actually what the Buddha taught. And I'm not going to list them or correct them or do anything because I also would take it even further to say, I don't know what kind of help they are giving to others. Probably something that I can't do. Questions to have, Joseph. What is authority? Uh, that's something that you think exists until you look really closely and you find out there is no such thing. Everything is concocted. Anything, anytime there's a, a polar, some kind of authority uh, going on, this is just uh, intense relative truth. But ultimately, there is no such authority. If you discover that, then nobody can tell you what to do, and you won't tell anybody what to do. And you'd be complete, uh, it's called, uh, I'm calling it right now, environmental respect. It's just environmental. You're not, no respect for someone. You're just very respectful of everything. You don't meddle with anything. And especially don't enter into anything unless you're invited. If someone is obviously, or maybe not so obviously, if someone is on the verge of killing themselves, you might want to step in their way and say, let's think this over for a while. And they might say, mind your own business. And you probably should be very very careful about your ideas about somebody. You, read the, you cannot see the big picture. That's why they call it the big picture. You can't see it. You can see little picture. You can see that. You can see this room. You don't know what's happening out in the parking lot right now. Somebody could be giving away a gold bullion. They're not. So just in case your imagination is getting carried away with you. I would know. Huh? You would know. know. Yeah. Well, aren't you a Capricorn? No, I just love gold. Oh. <laughs> Boy, but I am a Capricorn. <laughs> well, if we see you leave, we're coming <laughs> with our empty cart bags. So. so, yes. When you first started talking about noble silence, you said that some people like really like it and like to hide behind it, but there's others that really detest yeah. noble silence. And I was wondering. If, if it's equally, it equally lacks value for both, or if it would be helpful for someone to do that. I think, I think the important thing about it is that you could do that, but you don't have to institute some kind of form where noble silence, you know, where nobody can talk to you. It would be better to just work on that yourself. Just say for this retreat, I'm going to keep my, my extra speech to a minimum. And that would be something for someone who, the classical term is an extrovert, someone who does that. But it's up to them to do that. We provide, I provide, you provide a strong form for people to train their mind. We come in here, this is not a belief system. We don't, I don't believe in this. If I believed in this, it would not be Buddhism. It might be something else, but it would be Buddhism. Belief, disbelief, and 
ignoring are the three three that we avoid what is actually the case. We believe it. When soon you believe something, you put your interpretation on top of it, and you and you the, the, what's happening behind it could start to change and do something else. But you're so busy fixated on what you think it is, you don't even notice the change. So the classical extrovert introvert, it gets up to that person. Uh, to work with that themselves. And you'll notice if uh, those of you who come here, even though there's not a regulation about it, uh, when it, things tend to quiet down uh, um, situationally. We're in here having uh, orioki. Generally, that's fairly quiet. People you can have 20 people in here all eating without any. But if you go to a, 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 um, some other Zen practice, Zen uh, place, they'll, they'll tell you not to talk. In here, it happens naturally. Much better way for that to work. And that way, at some point, someone says, so do I put my spoon on the, can I, can I eat, can I eat, you know, those kind of things. About the, because the forms are laid out so specific. And you could, a person could actually ask something, but if you're at, uh, and I've eaten uh, Oriyoki style, three bowl meal, uh, comes out of the, the Japanese monastic tradition. I've eaten, uh, eaten that way with a group of 300 people. Dead silence, 300 people. That's unnatural. <laughs> and it's not unnatural that it helps. It creates a, a situation that then the ego mind, me, 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 me and my stuff, me and my control, me and what's good, me and me winning, me and me getting bread better, that mind resonates with that as some kind of thing to live up to. It's called a standard. It even says in the, in the uh, was it Hokio's on my, it says don't set up standards. There's just some of them. Yeah, I, I always get those confused. You know? Okay, is that my, is that, do not set up standards? No, sound okay. Sound okay. Never So, the idea of not setting up standards is not, you couldn't, couldn't have a standard. You couldn't have a, you know, it's a red light. Stop. You know, we, some, some we need, but it needs to be situational. So we are following rules, regulations, or, or standards because we don't have a choice in that, uh, in the sense of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say, you would say necessarily choice, but we, we, we need to do that. The situation requires that we have red lights so that we can keep cars from hitting each other. Although the roundabout works pretty good. <laughs> yes. What's the difference between the the not naturalness of the 300 people eating together, like you were talking about, and the the bit of artificialness when we sit and face the wall? Uh, because in the what you're doing there is eating. You're with a lot of people. It's a social situation. People eat, eat together. When you sit and face a wall, you, you know you not that you can't eat by yourself too. But it's a this is a you need to have a little bit of it. That's what Buddhism is called uh, uh, the middle way, not too tight, not too loose. Sometimes it just gets too tight because because of the control factor. But if you just sit down, hold still, and face the wall, it's quite natural. It might be excuse me unnatural to to not you know, shift around a little bit. But that's the training of the discipline part. So a little bit of that, uh, as has been said, goes a long way. Because if you sit like this for a half an hour, you're going to be very clear on how crazy you are. Because you want to get up. And anyone who can sit like this and uh, doesn't want to get up and is enjoy the, enjoying themselves, they should come and talk to me. I want to know how they do that. <laughs> you can actually make this into a God realm, of, of like a spiritual materialism kind of a a state of mind that is serene and blissed out and has rainbows and sparkly, nice. It's almost like somebody's angels are kissing you. Okay, enough mocking. Go ahead. Choo-choo. You used the word arbitrary a couple of times. I'm wondering what you mean by that. 
not arbitrary comes from the word arbor. <laughs> uh, what was it in reference to? I think specifically you were talking about walking meditation. Mm -hmm. You said maybe you need to sit more instead of having to arbitrarily ring a bell. Arbitrarily means that uh, it's arbitrary. Uh, I mean, it's a timed thing. So it's so the uh, they, he, she, they are striking the bell at a certain given time on the the list like we do on uh, the, the all day. There's a certain time, I think, in the afternoon where we do walking meditation once a month. Uh, but it's uh, from the point of view of the of the person who's sitting, um, it's it's kind of arbitrary. It's not it's not tuned into to their actual practice. So it might even be someone interfering with that on some level. So it's like obeying something. Yes, go ahead. I guess I'm curious if there's an opposite to, like an opposite concept to arbitrary. What does arbitrary mean? You're asking about its opposite. Yeah. I just used a word, but that, I don't claim any knowledge of the definition. <laughs> so arbitrary means there's no, there doesn't seem to be any, it seems to be just, uh, we're just hitting it. So hitting the, the, the striker on the on the bell. And it's, uh, even though there's a timing for it, it's, it's somewhat arbitrary as far as the state of mind. So there's no, there's no working with the state of mind. It just interferes with the state of mind as something. Life is doing that enough already. And so I would say when you're training your mind, you need to, the way it looks here, and this is from doing it for a long, long time. It's not, I didn't read a book on this. It's from doing, talking to people about it, Sangha, and looking at my own mind, at how I, what happens with me when I sit for long periods of time. And so that's how that, where that's coming from. I, I can see where there are times when one needs to sit for eight minutes and get up and leave and actually deal or work with the, the, the commentary that comes out of our subconscious gossip about ourselves and who we are so that we can see the way that part of the mind in this uh, Yogacara tradition called the sun's consciousness, how that keeps trying to an analyze and judge. You need to see that judgment and seeing that judgment in your own dynamic, not just the dynamic of the someone striking the bell. Life is doing that to us enough as it is. You already have to, you already have really strong forms using the bell. You have to be here on time. Uh, and if you're not, you're not. But so you relate to how, what what happens in your mind when when you don't come when the common bell is struck out in the entryway. Yes. Well, what is the difference between let's say you're sitting, you get eight minutes in, and you have a thought that you need to get up, or mm -hmm. there's awareness that you need to get up? What's the difference? And that was, it's uh, the awareness will not have a, won't have an agenda unless it's an unless the agenda comes with it. Like oh, I forgot to turn off the coffee pot, or or I have, forgot to turn on the coffee pot. So then it's, it's situational, but uh, it's not that it's not situational when you're sitting and you just feel so antsy you need to get up, but you may need to go through that and not have it interrupted uh, by uh, um, uh, an extra form. The, the, the form of timing the sitting practice for certain lengths of time and telling you when to do walking meditation, when to do sitting meditation, um, I feel, I don't think, but I feel interrupts the natural uh, I don't know if you say progression, but the natural state. Some people sit down and and can just sit there for four hours. We do have uh, have something that I call block sitting, where uh, especially I started by talking with about in, to inmates about it. But now I see, as we go along, I see it's very good, especially people who don't live in the monastery who don't have the opportunity to sit for extended periods. I say pick out a time every couple of weeks and sit for four hours. Sit there and don't move, or endeavor to sit, strike a bell, strike a water glass, sit down and hold still, don't move. So the attitude of not moving for four hours is, is there, 
but then we move anyway. And that's what the mind is doing around that is what I feel needs to be seen because that's a, there's a direct connection to the self-centeredness that's very hard to locate if you're looking for it. But it shows up, it's, it's, you get that display of, I can't do this anymore, or I, I think I need to stretch my legs, or you know, all of those things start happening, but they are in the container that was recommended by me and, and accepted or agreed upon by the meditator to, to do the best they can to stay in that four hour. It's not a mistake if they sit for two hours or three hours or, or 15 minutes, or if they sit over that time. There's no right or wrong to it. It's always about awareness. And so that form is just like the form of coming in here and sitting for two and a half hours in the afternoon, every afternoon, or two hours in the morning, two hours at night. It's just a form. You, you, you might be sick, so maybe you can't come. So that, that's more of a, that to me, that more uh, makes what we're doing, even though sitting six and a half hours a day is pretty extraordinary, it makes it more ordinary because you still get to just be yourself, work with the forms as you are, and so, and this would help you that when you leave here, I feel, when you leave here, it should, it's a place you can leave, go somewhere else, but you can't, you have to stay here. No, anybody can leave, it's not a prison. But when you leave, then, then that kind of, then you're not missing those forms so much because the forms were just strong enough to give you a good container, but not so, tr so strong to make you feel like you needed some kind of authority over you. So you're, by having this person as an apparent authority, I'm also understand what this is in such a way that uh, uh, you need to be weaned off of this authority, but at your own speed. So that's kind of how that works. Does that make any sense to you? Question? We can do one more question. We have a question. Yeah. You look questionable. <laughs> <laughs> was, was it a real Ginsburg poem, like physically written by Ginsburg? Yeah. <laughs> I knew him. I knew him, so I met him. He, he looked at some of my poetry and said, this sucks. <laughs> no, he, he didn't. He, 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 he actually, uh, I think he reiterated uh, William Carlos Williams' uh, uh, idea that uh, no ideas but in things. And he told me to write more about stuff, less about philosophical things. So it was very embarrassing to have. <laughs> but I thought, I, I should I should have him. He's a great poet. I should have him read something. I, at that time, I've uh, been, been writing a lot. I was trying to really try hard to be a really famous poet. <laughs> didn't work. Failed. So yes, and he and you could, and I he, he didn't sign it. I think he did sign uh, A G under it, and he couldn't resist that. <laughs> kind of a vain fellow, but uh, uh, but you could tell by uh, if you're familiar with his work, you could tell that, that that's those the way he put those words together. His signature was in his words, so it was quite interesting to see an outhouse poem. It's a really nice outhouse, too. It wasn't one of those shabby, beat-up ones with, with obscure poets writing. <laughs> we have to leave? Yeah. Where are we going? Uh, we're going to dedicate the merit and then go to the Daily Dharma Gap. Okay. And I would like to remind everybody we do have donation boxes still in the hallway, and gratefully accept any financial support you can help us. Donations are very important to the ongoing support of these teachings. May the merit of this penetrate into all places so that we and every sentient being together can realize the Buddha's way.